I love travel. I can't wait to start traveling again. But the future is about low carbon travel, nature positive travel, and travel that's more inclusive. You're listening to the Better Travel Podcast, and I am your host, Paige McClanahan. Travel has been a passion of mine ever since I was a kid. But as I've gotten older and as I've learned more about the industry through my reporting, I've really started to see just how complicated travel can be. So each week, we are diving in to some of the most fascinating and complex topics when it comes to travel. And it's all with the aim of helping you, and let's be honest, helping me, learn to be a smarter, better traveler. Hi there, welcome back. We're here with episode two, in which we're really diving deep into some essential questions about how our travel affects the climate and nature, and also about how tourism is essential to so many people and communities around the world. These kinds of questions can get a little bit tricky, but we have an incredibly knowledgeable and gracious guide today in the form of Justin Francis. Justin is the founder and chief executive of Responsible Travel, which is a travel operator based in Britain that Justin describes as an activist travel company. But Justin isn't just the head of a travel agency. He also advises the British government on questions of nature and business. He's a director of a safari company in Kenya, and he helped to set up the Jet Zero Council, which is helping to drive progress toward a cleaner future of flying. So you're going to hear Justin talk about how he's working from within the industry to tackle some of the biggest challenges in travel and tourism, and how he's hoping to push his competitors to be more honest about the impact of the trips that they're selling. You'll hear him talk about why he thinks the cruise industry has the most work to do in terms of reducing its environmental and social impacts. And listen up, because you're going to hear Justin's advice on the three things that we all need to pay attention to if we want to reduce the environmental footprint of our trips. There's so much good stuff in here. To be honest, I was kind of frantically taking notes the whole time he was talking, um, and I really hope that you get just as much out of it as I did. But I started by asking Justin to talk about where we were with travel and tourism before the pandemic hit, and whether he thought the industry had crossed a line. I think it across multiple lines. Um, I think in many destinations it across the over tourism line. The point at which tourism starts to become less enjoyable for the tourists and much less enjoyable for local people. So not in every destination, but in many destinations, we'd cross that line. So it was degrading the experience of the tourists. It's just too much, too many people, too too much overcrowding and absolutely degraded the lifestyles and ways of life of the people who lived there. I also think we were crossing the line of carbon emissions um, and um, like, like the whole planet, um, but our sector was crossing that line too. Absolutely, yeah. Um, you describe your company as an activist travel company and as a Trojan horse in the tourism industry. Uh, I wonder if I could ask, what do you mean by those terms and how are you embodying them? Well, um, my way of thinking is that if you start a business, um, you try and do your best, offer the most amazing holidays to customers. You also try and look after the places which you visit and, 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 and depend on and local people who live there. But you also operate in an industry. So am I to be quiet when I see abuses in our industry? Uh, or am I to say, listen, I, I, I want to point that out. Um, I, I want to talk about this, whatever those issues might be. And so I felt that I wanted to go beyond just running the best company I could, but I wanted to try and influence the industry in which we're in. You might say that's crazy or a wild ambition, but that was the intention. From the beginning, my thought was that, this is 20 years ago now, that we needed all of us needed to understand we had a choice in travel 
I think even then we understood we had a choice about the food we ate and whether it was organic or not. And many people made that choice. But there wasn't such a clear understanding that you had that choice in, in travel. So that's what responsible travel was about. Now, up until that point, there'd been many people who had been pointing at the industry and saying there's some wonderful things about it, but there's some not so great things about it. But those people typically had been um, academics or NGOs or a few brave and brilliant journalists. But it hadn't been somebody in the industry themselves. And so the Trojan horse bit is, it's kind of easy to pretend you're not hearing journalists, um, or it was then 20 years ago, it's really hard to ignore someone in your industry or someone who's, who's created a business that's doing things in a different way. It's fascinating to see how far and fast Elon Musk took electric cars, not as a scientist, but as an entrepreneur. Um, and so I do think businesses who are the kind of the real pioneers do have an ability to shake up and influence an industry and grandiose idea perhaps, but that was mine. I wonder, I mean, the, the company was founded in 2001. Is that right? It is. So what kind of reactions did you get from your counterparts in the industry then? And how has that shifted over the years? Are you kind of seeing more support? Are you seeing other people with your ethos emerging now? Or were you, you know, were you sort of um, attracting kind of skepticism or negative reactions at the beginning? Yeah, a lot of negative reactions at the beginning, because when you call a company responsible travel, you're kind of, which is, is intentional, but you're implying that the rest of the industry might not be responsible. So the bravest thing was the name. Um, so people were felt threatened by that. Um, and what do you get? You get deflection. So it's this, I run a hotel, I run a tour company, but I can't control what happens in a destination. Therefore, I'm powerless, I can't do anything. Or I don't understand what this means. Can we spend five or six years trying to define it and understand what it means, which is deflecting from, from actually doing anything. So um, lack of understanding, deflection, uh, defensiveness um, was how we started. Um, and also, Paige, it was a reluctant... There were actually some people doing some great things in tourism. The whole ecotourism movement, which was about conserving species, which was, was pretty wonderful at the time. But nobody really wanted to talk about it because they felt they weren't perfect. And perfect is the great tyranny of, of in some cases, of making progress and communications. So I was encouraging people to say, none of us are perfect, responsible travel, miles from being perfect. But let's just talk about the few good things that we're doing. And there was a reluctance to do that as well. Over time, um, we progressed into um, businesses saying, I begin to understand the concept now, um, but it's too hard, through to, I'd like to show you something. I've got a few stories to tell. Um, how can I do more? And I think where we were before the pandemic was that, you know, as a, as a tourist, you looked at most hotels, they had an environmental policy on there. It may be bad, it may not be. You looked at most travel agents or tour companies, they had something which they were beginning to talk about. So we'd progressed a long way. Um, but at the same time, Paige, you know, we now realise we have eight years left to arrest the climate crisis, if we, you know, to arrest the worst declines. And we also have a collapse of nature, which I'd like to talk about a bit more, in a, which is important to address if we're to, um, to solve the global heating crisis. And so now I feel that the progress we've made over 20 years, steady has it been, has just got to be supercharged over the next eight to 10 years. We face a climate crisis and a nature crisis. So somehow coming off our knees in a pandemic, we need to go to warp speed 50 or we, we need to just accelerate at a massive rate. Absolutely. And I'd love to ask you yeah, more about both the nature crisis and the climate crisis. Maybe we could start with the, the nature side of things. How do you see tourism intersecting with the nature crisis you know, and what potential does it have to remedy the situation or at least not contribute in a negative way to the current situation? 
I want to just relate, if it's okay, I want to just relate this back to the climate crisis. They sound like two separate things. They're not two separate things. So um, basically, when we th- it's helpful to think about the climate crisis, thinking of sources of carbon and sinks of carbon. Sources, how much we emit. Sinks, how much the planet absorbs. And to move forwards, we need to reduce how much carbon we put into the atmosphere and we need to increase the planet's ability to absorb it. That's where nature comes in. So, healthy forests, trees, savannas, grasslands, peat bogs, marine ecosystems absorb or sequester carbon. So we have to restore nature not only to solve the climate crisis, but absolutely as part of solving the climate crisis. Just reducing carbon isn't enough. We also need to restore the ecosystem to absorb the carbon that is there, that we're putting there. So tourism. This is where it gets quite exciting for all of us travellers and people working in tourism. Very often we visit places for nature. And I'm not just talking about wildlife holidays, I'm talking about landscapes, natural environments, even marine environments. It's very often part of um, the reason that we visit. A byproduct of our visit is we create a value on those ecosystems being kept beautiful and pristine and perfect because we ain't coming otherwise. And we also create um, a change in the economic choices that local local authorities and, and governments have. Should I keep that land in pristine condition for tourists or should we develop it, should we use it for intensive agriculture? And we're game changers in that conversation. And it's been fascinating during the pandemic, sadly, to see how much conservation has relied on tourism and how when tourism is removed, the crisis we see in conservation. Globally, 50% of the funding for national parks comes from tourism. Because many, you know, many developing countries, many, you know, many struggle uh, to fund conservation when there's so many other pressing needs. So we are, you know, as tourists and visitors, um, we can be a vital part of nature conservation. I wonder if that's something you've seen in Kenya, especially with the safari company that you that you work with there. Yes. So it was a very. Um, I work with a company called Basecamp Explorer Kenya, and. Um, the land is owned by the uh, Maasai, uh, amazing indigenous community. And their choices were quite simple. Um, there's a huge amount of land which lies outside of the national parks, the Maasai Mara National Parks. And their choice was to farm it um, or to um, develop it and build on it or to use it for tourism. And the wildlife knows no boundaries. The wildlife is, is spread across all of this area. And... The maths added up that we could we could pay them a lease fee for use of the land for tourism that would be greater than the income they could make from using it in other ways. So we have individual bank accounts set up for hundreds of Maasai families. Every month into their bank account goes a fee for use of their land for wildlife tourism. Plus, um, 95% of the staff are... Maasai. Um, they're trained as guides. Uh, they work in the lodges. We have 140 women who come into the camp and make beads. Um, and 60% of the money they're sold for goes back directly into their hands. We've built um, a wildlife training college um, to train the Maasai to work in tourism. And as a result of this, the Maasai are looking at more and more land and, and saying we would like to, to use it in this way. The benefit of this is astonishing experience for the tourists. The wildlife is protected. The Maasai have an income alongside their cattle, which has been their traditional source of income. But there's other benefits. The other benefits is these grasslands are really important for sequestering carbon. Keeping them healthy is really important for the battle against climate change and protecting biodiversity and we've got some of the world's greatest biodiversity in Kenya, is also critically important. So that's the type of thing which tourism can do. Fantastic. I wonder if you could also talk about, I mean, that sounds like a, an ideal example of where a lot of things are coming together to have positive impacts socially, economically, environmentally. 
Can you talk about what maybe a sort of a not so good example looks like? Because I've certainly heard of, excuse me, ecotourism projects where it's kind of greenwashing or actually where the visitors might even be having a negative impact on the ecosystem they're visiting. Yeah. Can you talk about, yeah, what's the difference and how can people... What should people be looking out for? Well, I'm going to give you a few examples of that. Um, but then I'm also going to, if, if you'll allow me, just broaden out our, our thinking about how we impact on nature just from the wildlife safaris. So um, in other parts of, uh, of East Africa, there is clear evidence that the number of safari vehicles surrounding cheetahs who hunt during the daylight is so much that it disturbs their um, their hunting patterns and it affects their breeding patterns. So we are loving wildlife to death in that case. There are lots of examples of irresponsible whale watching when the boat just wants to get as close as possible to the whales in order to, um, to get that close-up experience for the guests, which disturbs either breeding uh, or feeding patterns. Um, tragic examples of... Um, of of whales having to dive too often and causing stress on them and their calves. Um, there are examples of off-road driving, uh, which becomes so pervasive that we're crisscrossing natural areas with um, with deep deep tracks and starting to destroy the um, the habitats. So. Plenty of examples. One more page, you know, sometimes we go to um, a beach resort and we think, wow, what a fabulous, beautiful beach. What we don't know is that the mangroves have been cleared um, and the mangroves are hosts to marine uh, life, uh, breeding grounds for fish. Um, They also protect us, by the way, against surges and storm surges. And they've been removed um, because the traditional postcard image of a beach is one of just clear sand. So plenty of examples of ecotourism having gone wrong. So I wonder if, say, there's a listener out there who's planning a trip for 2021 and they want to go see a beautiful landscape and maybe see some wildlife or go to a beautiful beach. What should they be looking out for in terms of telling the good from the bad? And, you know, either if they're planning the trip themselves or if they're going through a tour operator, how can a normal traveler... So what's so great about what you're doing, Paige, with your podcast is that we all need to um, educate ourselves a little bit. You know, in the past, we've just chosen holidays on. It looks great. Great destination. Great price. Great dates. But we now need to get a bit more sophisticated if we want to make a difference and feel good about our holidays. But there's no easy answers. And (laughs) and you know that better better than everybody. So a few simple answers. Um... First up, look at the place that you're um, visiting, uh, your lodge um, or your travel agent tour company. You should easily find their um, sustainable or responsible tourism policy on there. If you don't, red flag. If you do, does it cover local communities? Does it cover nature? And does it also have something about how they're reducing carbon? If it doesn't, a um, little bit of a red flag. It really should be covering all those three dimensions. Then have a look. Have they reported some progress? Are there any evidence of what they've been doing? Um, or does it just look like it's been stuck on as a, as a policy? Does it excite you? That's my first step. I think then alongside my inquiry, I would add a few more questions. So my standard inquiry might be about dates and prices and availability and family suitability. Um, But I would tack onto that a question and say, um, please, can you tell me how my particular trip uh, will support communities and nature and about your efforts to reduce carbon emissions? And take it from there. So ask some questions. Um, Do your research on the website. Ask some questions. Particularly focus on evidence rather than just cut and paste policies. See how confident you feel as a first step. 
Yeah, I think that's such an important point. Just asking, just by asking those questions, you're forcing them to think about it and you're showing that they have a potential customer, a potential paying customer who cares about those issues. So maybe even if it's a company that you're not going to end up uh, you know, booking your holiday with, you're you're sort of raising raising awareness a little bit at the same time. Well, you're being a little bit activist, you know, to use the word, you know, you're beginning to create change. There's a, another another way to ask the questions is, please could you tell me what are the biggest issues in the destination that are facing nature and local communities and how you're addressing them? So, you know, I'm less interested in a business who can tick a few boxes that misses the elephant in the room. You know, if you're in an area of, uh, of poverty, um, if you're in an, an arid area, you know, then it's fantastic that you've sourced something here from, you know, and it, so- it sounds good or you've donated a bit to tree planting in Europe. But I really want to know about what you're doing about the big issues in that destination. So it's a way of really focusing down um, and trying to understand the issues that they're facing in the destination and what's being done about them and how you can contribute. Another question is, um, do you have anything, um, any needs, um, anything I can bring that might help? Um, are there any projects you support? Um, are they short of anything that I might bring to contribute? I think many of us want to contribute, but we don't quite know what to do. So sometimes we bring stuff and it's not needed or not helpful. So ask the question in advance. Um, and again, if you're not finding they support any projects and, and they haven't thought through how the, the, us you know, tourists can help, then that's not so impressive either. either. Yeah, what, we, what you're saying really reminds me of, um, gosh, who was the, the Swiss academic who said that um, fixing tourism will, will require rebellious locals and rebellious tourists? It was Krippendorf. Um, there you go. Krippendorf who said that. Um, so the other thing, you know, Paige, for me is this is not just about doing good. It's about enjoyment of travel. Um, when we think back about our most memorable experience, they've often kind of been accidental. Um, but they've also been just extraordinary connections with people who just lead other life, different ways of life. You know, it could be in Italy or France or it could be somewhere much further away. And I think tourism is the quest for the other. That's why I travel. Now, it makes sense to me that from a local person who sees tourists all the time, it's, you know, sometimes you're going to open up and um, and want to be friendly and sometimes you're not. So it makes sense to me that if you treat local people well and right, you've got more chance of them feeling good about sharing more of their culture and ways of life. So for me, behaving in this way with local people being thoughtful about how we travel, thoughtful about their lives, always creates unexpected, joyful encounters which you might not otherwise ever have had, certainly not if you hadn't had a responsible mindset to travel. So there's something in this for us as tourists that go way beyond saving the planet, which frankly should be enough, but there's something else in it for us beyond that. And I would love to ask you about aviation and tourism um, in particular, the topic of carbon offsets, which I've heard you see, speak about in another interview you gave. What is your opinion of carbon offsets? And do you think this is something that people should consider when they're booking a holiday, you know, buying uh, an offset to counteract the effects of their flight? Or is it something they should sort of be approached with caution? So um, let's just go a little deeper just for a second. We've got eight years left. Uh, we're not going to avert all of the climate crisis. We know that, that some of it now is um, is irreversible. Um, when I was young, Paige, uh, the way in which I used to travel was I might have one long summer holiday if we could afford it and we might fly somewhere if I was lucky. Um, and then we'd have um, a few shorter breaks. So I might fly typically once a year or my longer holiday. Then we have low cost airlines. So the whole pattern of travel has changed. Instead of taking one, you know, flight a year or a couple, we take multiple. You know, we have 
two days here, we have three days there. And over the year, we have all of these short breaks, which stress us out half the time and, uh, and burn so much carbon. So my mindset is we need to reduce how much we fly. And I can explain more about that, uh, why the science tells us that, if, if, if you like. But Well, first of all, can I just comment that hearing the owner of a travel agency saying we need to reduce how much we fly is, that's pretty powerful. There is some good news coming. Um, so sustainable aviation fuels are an alternative to kerosene. Kerosene is the fuel which goes in the plane and it's just, it's a fossil fuel. It's, it's highly carbon polluting. Sustainable aviation fuels can either be made from waste, which is converted into a, a, a fuel which, which planes can burn, or there's some new technology which creates it in a lab, you know, chemically, which is even, even better. The best hopes for the next 10 years is we might get 10% of aviation fuel uh, internationally made from sustainable aviation fuel. And it's much less carbon polluting. Fantastic. Planes are getting a little bit more efficient. Uh, the modern planes are more efficient, but they tend to stay around forever. You know, we, they're in use for, for decades. But the newer planes are much more efficient burning kerosene. That's a little bit of a help as well. If we could sort out air traffic control so we weren't flying crazy patterns, which I hope we will, that will reduce carbon emissions a bit. But let's start adding these numbers up. You know, it's 10% there, it's 5% there, it's 20%. Technology might get us to 20%, you know, 25% reductions. It's not enough. We need 50% reductions um, in the next eight years versus, you know, just a couple of years ago. So simple maths tells you that technology is not going to get there. Um, and so we do need to fly less. And what I'm advocating is that we stay longer when we travel, which means that we're going to have fewer holidays in total, but longer ones. And we're going to have fewer flights in total. And that some of our holidays we take closer to home uh, or um, by train. It's actually a throwback. It's a throwback to how we used to travel rather than how we travel now, which is multiple flights. Now, um, I, so I believe that we need to, in every aspect of our lives, we need behavioural change. I really like it when a travel company or hotel plants trees. Uh, I think it's amazing. Uh, I really like it when they um, support other what's called nature-based solutions to climate change, things that help the natural ecosystem absorb carbon. But I really dislike the way they market it and pretend that you don't need to change anything because this magic pill called a carbon offset has solved all of your problems. Um, so um, I'm not averse to, to companies um, planting trees. In fact, I'm very much in favour of companies to, uh, planting trees, but it's misleading to, to tell a customer, tell us as tourists, that it neutralises carbon. When you put carbon in the atmosphere, it stays there for hundreds or thousands of years. You don't neutralise it. I'm even more sceptical when a business says um, that they're carbon positive. You know, it's, non it's nonsense. So, if your travel company is planting trees, terrific. But... The real question to ask them is, what are you doing to reduce carbon? Don't be conned by them into thinking that their cheap offer of a carbon offset gives them permission to just carry on in their heavily carbon polluting ways. You know, that's, um, that's totally irresponsible. So carbon emissions from a holiday come from transport primarily, the energy use in the accommodation and surprisingly the food that you eat which can be a major contrib contributor. So ask your travel company, what's the energy source in your hotel? Is it renewable? Or if, it's, uh, if you're staying in a hotel, if it's a travel agent, the hotels that I'm staying in, what, what energy do they use? Is it renewable electric energy? Um, is it solar? Um, how else are they sourcing their energy? If they've got no answers to that, then they're not thinking about it hard enough. Secondly, 
food is a major contributor to carbon emissions. Um, it's far bigger, actually, than the tourism industry. It's far bigger. Agriculture is a far bigger contributor than, um, than carbon emissions. And it's particularly beef and dairy. Um, we use so much land. We take so much land out of natural state um, in order to produce beef and dairy. So we need to take wildlife off our plate and nature off, nature off our plate. So when you're sat in your eco-lodge feeling pretty good about yourself, if you're eating meat and dairy, in the Amazon, part of it's being cut and down, cut down to create land for the cattle, um, um, which, which you are eating. Um, but that forest has been cut down as a direct result of what you eat. So is your hotel offering a really amazing and delicious and lovely, um, uh, you know, uh, doesn't have to be vegan, but certainly, you know, plant-based, plant-based menus. So these are the ways. Also, you know, local transport. Local transport is um, lower carbon than, you know, than, than private transport. The more people you can get in a vehicle, the lower carbon emissions per person. So ask them about all of that. And I also wonder about the question of food. I mean, if you're sitting in a kind of eco-lodge in the Canadian Rockies and you're eating a mango or an avocado, I mean, are food miles something that you could be asking the hotel or restaurant about as well? And food waste. How much food do they waste? Do they have a good food waste strategy? When you throw waste, throw away waste, you're basically throwing away carbon in nature because all of that food took intensively in many cases carbon um, to produce and to your point about food miles absolutely you know i on holiday i would like to eat amazing vegetables from a local farm because uh, it's going to be fresh and delicious i really would like to know that they are organic or they're they're nature friendly in their farming approaches and if my hotel or tour company said, listen, we've got a policy of supporting local farmers and I can show you on, on your menu where it all comes from. And by the way, they're farming in a nature friendly way. I'm thinking, yum, I'm thinking I'm feeling really I'm feeling really good about that. OK, so those are super useful ideas and things to keep in mind. So just to if I can kind of say back what I heard you say is to make sure I've got it all. So you said that if we're looking to reduce our carbon emissions while we travel we can look at transport we can look at energy use and we can, we can look at food and reduce the amount that we're traveling try to find places that are using sustainable sources of energy and reduce the carbon impact of our food by avoiding dairy and meat and by maybe looking for places that source their food more locally is that have i forgot have i missed any big categories there no that's a really good summary if they're going above and beyond reducing their emissions and, and saying, actually, we're contributing to restoring habitats, then perhaps that's something to, well, it is something to be excited about as well. And it could just be the hotel grounds. You know, instead of mowing the lawns within an inch of their lives or a centimetre of their lives, they have, um, for example, um, put bird nesting sites up. They've created wild areas. They've got... Um, a, a policy of managing light, uh, which disturbs wildlife, um, uh, turtles famously, but a whole bunch of other wildlife as well. Even if it's just on the small area of their in their hotel grounds or lodge grounds, I'm thinking, great. If they've gone beyond and said, listen, you know, as a tourist, we take you to see this astonishing uh, wildlife, whatever it be, and um, you pay for it and you enjoy it and we make profits from it. And we're funding some restoration and conservation programs, and that's terrific too. So it's always these two sides, Paige. It's always about what are they doing to reduce the, the harm uh, and what are they doing to support the good? I'd like to ask you as well about the cruise industry, because, of course, if we're talking about climate change and tourism, the cruise industry plays a big role. What can you tell us about the cruise industry and climate and the environment and is it possible to have a cruise that is not contributing to an environmental problem? Well, Paige, in my opinion, um, the cruise industry has got the most work to do of any part of the tourism industry to address many of the issues we've spoken about. Um, so cruise ship um, burns heavily polluting f fuel. Um, if it was on land, it would be deemed toxic. Um, and it's a blunt instrument, a cruise ship, uh, which means that you'd be wrong if you thought that it was a lower carbon way to travel than flying. 
distance, obviously the distance is important. If, if your cruise is, it, it's per kilometre, it's per passenger per kilometre, it's, it's comparable. There is tight legal regulations for the cruise industry about what they can and where they can um, discharge um, from their ships. I mean, discharge waste. I, um... Discharge waste, yeah. It doesn't take much research to find a litany of fines going back decades um, where the cruise industry has failed to meet legal requirements around discharge of waste and sewage. The air quality in ports where cruise ships dock and keep their engines on is severely affected. It's nitrogen dioxide, I believe, is one of the dangerous gases which is produced as, as a result of the cruise ship's burn. And there's demonstrable impacts on air quality in destinations. Um, clearly, you know, we want them to find ways to turn their engines off. Clearly, we want them to, um, to find better ways of managing waste than discharging it at sea. Um, Hutti Gruten... Uh, who operate um, a ferry service but also a cruise service uh, are pioneering their first hybrid powered cruise ship. Um, so there's some slow progress and there is some innovation um, in, in, in the cruise sector. There's another area that I'm concerned about with cruise ships, which is staff welfare and working conditions. And there's been a number of documentaries, fly on the wall documentaries about that, which haven't painted the industry in a flattering way. And many of the cruise ships are registered in places that don't require strict, they've got quite lax around, you know, staff welfare and, and conditions. So it's, where do my concerns lie? Fuel, carbon emissions, pollution, staff welfare, but also overcrowding in, in destinations. And it's a real challenge. I mean, so many people love, love, love cruise and, you know, and, I, you know, and, and they do so in big numbers. But when three or four cruise ships arrive at once with multiple thousand people on and, and disembark, you can see the pressures it causes on Venice, Dubrovnik and, and many other places around the world. And although those tourists contribute to local economies, ultimately they're often staying on board, well, they stay on board and they eat on board. So what you hear from destinations is that I'm feeling I'm getting a lot of impact from a lot of people and I'm getting less benefit than from other tourists because they're spending less per passenger. Um, so, I, I mean, I'd encourage you to get a cruise ship representative on the uh, on your podcast and hear the story from them. But that's my charge. It's not it's it's not great. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, you mentioned Hertegruden and I have interviewed them for a story that I wrote um, a year and a half ago or so. But yeah, it is interesting to see what innovations are being made in the cruise industry but i saw i saw that responsible travel does have cruises as trips that you send so what do you what types of cruises do you offer and how do you make sure that they mitigate at least or minimize the kind of negative impacts yeah we have small ship um cruises which are more your wildlife you know led um expeditionary or you know polar or galapagos um they burn a different type of fuel a better type of fuel um they have wildlife guides on incredibly carefully managed but we also limit the numbers so we won't sell anything which has got more than 250 people on um why why that number um partly because uh we're concerned about the impacts of vast numbers of tourists and destinations Partly because we believe in these, you know, more personal experience for, you know, for um, for guests. So it's it's typically wildlife or expedition led. It's small ship. Um, it's supporting research. Uh, it's burning a different type of fuel. And can I just ask? I mean, how has business been for responsible travel? over the past eighteen months or so? What what has that been experience been like for you? It's disastrous. <laughs> it's been disastrous. And the thing is, the thing is, Paige, is that um, what we read a lot about is, you know, airline, you know, airline people losing their jobs or, you know, reduction in um, how many people work in tourism in France or America or, or the UK. Um, 
But what I hear about is the person who put who lives in Nepal who only could afford to feed their children or put their kids through school because of tourism that work in a you know in a tea lodge. Um, what I hear about is um, kids not going to school, people having to struggle to you know feed families. And that's not had that much publicity, really. But that's, you know, I think all of us in, in tourism and in business um, should judge ourselves on how we treat the most vulnerable, really. Um, and the joy of, of tourism is it does include people who could never get into any other sector. You know, someone who's semi-literate um, or indigenous uh, or um, otherwise marginalised can access our industry you know i've met them you've met them on your travels they're working and they're happy what a joy it is to meet those people they're not going to work in banking or become dentists so they're in our they're in our horrible word they're in our supply chain but they're part of our family it would be a different way of discussing it and those are the few people that i feel most concerned about along with the collapse in funding for conservation which we touched on earlier so that's where the pain is mostly being felt. But yeah, it's horrendous. And for the simple reason that the virus is transmitted by people and the tourism industry transmits people, that means that our sector is the worst hit of any sector. Um, and whilst others are thankfully recovering, fabulous, we are, we're not talking about, we're talking about survival mostly. You know, even the big airlines are talking about survival rather than recovery at this point in time. I wonder, you know, at the beginning, we were talking about the kind of crisis of over-tourism that we saw before the pandemic. Do you think in a way, the current crisis as painful um, and devastating even as it's been, is it sort of something that the industry needed to go through? Or do you think it could ultimately lead to a transformation in, in the industry that might have positive effects ultimately? It's a really brilliant question. Um, my honest answer is we probably won't know for five years. There's a lot of wishful thinking, um, but there's also a lot of a lot of destinations, a lot of tourists who just want to get back to normal. And who can blame them at this point in at this point in time? I want to have my holiday, and if you're dependent on tourism, I want to get restarted. So we do need to get restarted. What am I hopeful about? I'm hopeful about people being more conscious of travel as a privilege. And a very special thing. And a privilege always comes with responsibility. The fly less message, which I used to hear very strongly um, from small parts of small, very, you know, very green uh, friends and, and family. I'm hearing everywhere, everywhere now. So I'm hopeful that that message might might land, you know, fly less, stay longer. Don't stress yourself out with all these short breaks, you know, get a proper break. Um, the other thing I'm hopeful about is is this kind of return to nature. I think what the pandemic has done has made us appreciate, from a mental health perspective, not least, the value in nature. And I think that there are so many of us who love nature, but never would have really thought about taking a nature-based holiday before. That would have been for people with tripods and long binoculars and very big cameras. And I think that's going to change. A lot more people will think, I want some nature as part of my travel. And I think I think that can be good for, for all the reasons that I've described. But what do you think, Paige? You know, you, 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 the interviewer with all these people and close to the ground. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that I, all of the points you made about people not taking travel for granted as much as, I mean, that certainly personally, that's something that has a change I've seen in myself, you know, realizing what a privilege it is to be able to get on a plane and go to another part of the world and not sort of treating that as just something that you can do, you know, whenever you like. And, um, and yeah, the return to nature, I actually wrote a story for the New York Times toward the end of last year about national parks in Europe and or national parks and other natural areas in Europe and the huge surge in crowds they saw especially over the summer last year and I know that in the national parks in the United States they had huge crowds and it was I think it was a little bit of a challenge for some of them because they didn't necessarily have the staffing they needed to sort of manage the the new um, you know all their sort of all the people who are newly interested in it but it is fascinating to see 
people going for hikes who had never done that before, you know, young adults and teenagers um, getting out of the city and seeing the landscapes that are not that far away. So, yeah, I'm I'm optimistic, too. I mean, I guess that's why I started this podcast. I hope that it can be part of a transformation. Yeah. Paige, in the, um, in the UK, um, those types of people that I see enjoying nature in that way are mostly white. They're mostly white. And um, nature has, has been a place where you needed, you need time. You need transport to get there. Um, and it's, it's been a, it's tragic to me that not all parts of our society have, have, have been able to access nature or felt it was for them. You know, really. And it's easy for you and I to think, well, we'll just drive out there. You know, our parents take us. We know how to do it. We hiked when we were kids. We're not, we're not, it's not unfamiliar to us. But that's not the case for all parts of, um, of, um, of society. Um, so I think we've got a colossal amount of work to do in making nature-based tourism more inclusive. We need to stop thinking just about nature as national parks and game parks. Every holiday we take impacts on nature. It could be to a city, it could be to a rural area. Uh, we need to just stop thinking about lions and tigers. So our impacts on nature fall in five different areas. Pollution, and that could be um, solid waste, you know, sewage, but it could be uh, air pollution, noise pollution, it could be light pollution. Um, the second one is um, over-exploitation, loving wildlife to death. We spoke about that a little bit earlier. The next one is land use change, when what we're eating is literally forests are coming down somewhere else in, or our resort has, has, has taken away trees or taken away mangroves. Um, climate change, uh, and also, no one ever thinks of this, about this one, but non-native invasive species uh, that out-compete our native species, you know, plants uh, as well as uh, invertebrates and, um, uh, and fish and all sorts of species. So every holiday we take impacts on nature, not just in wildlife areas. Okay, so fantastic. So you say the things to to think about when we're thinking about our travel and our interactions with nature, the five things are pollution, over-exploitation of the wildlife or maybe the ecosystem, land use change, climate change, and then this question of invasive species. Exactly. And that broad, that broadens our minds. I work um, with the UK government and with other governments. I'm working towards the, um, the climate summit in, in the UK in November. And what's racing up the agenda alongside climate change is loss of nature and biodiversity, partly because we need it as part of our battle against climate change. And so be prepared, all of us, to hear about these two, I would argue, three big global challenges. Climate, nature, and then inclusivity. And I don't believe that we can solve the climate crisis or the nature crisis unless we're more inclusive. Because how do we tell other parts of the world who haven't yet exploited their nature or who haven't yet burnt all the carbon to develop their economies, how do we tell them to do that unless we are more inclusive, unless there's more benefits from the tourism industry to tourism destinations, to people of colour, it's going to fail. It's going to fail. So for me, its future is, I love travel. I can't wait to start traveling again. But the future is about low carbon travel, nature positive travel, and travel that's more inclusive. Well, fantastic, Justin. Thank you so much. I think that's a perfect place to wrap up the conversation. A wonderful note of optimism and a, a vision of a a better future for the industry and, and for all of us, really. I hope so too. Um, and I choose to be optimistic, Paige, because that's a better way to lead a life. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely.
welcome back. That was my interview with Justin Francis, the founder and chief executive of a company called Responsible Travel. Now, I just want to say that it's pretty amazing to speak to a guy who, you know, he's the owner of a travel company. He has a very clear financial interest in encouraging people to travel more and to travel farther, but he's not doing that. You know, instead, he's really taking a stand and calling for radical changes to the industry and a better approach to travel overall. So I learned so much from that interview with Justin, and I hope you did too. We got into some pretty big questions there. So I wanted to let you know about a couple of cool resources that you can check out if you want to dive deeper into some of those questions. The first is actually a short 23-minute film called The Story of Overtourism, and it was made by the folks at Responsible Travel, and it's actually narrated by Justin. And it really dives into how we got to this crazy point before the pandemic of crossing a line with tourism in so many ways in so many places around the world. So I'll put the link to that in the show notes. And the second resource I wanted to mention is Responsible Travel's list of all of the things that they consider when they're screening the trips that they sell. So if you're just starting to think about planning a trip and you're not quite sure where to start in terms of thinking about the carbon impact or the social impact or the impact on, I don't know, animal welfare, it's all in there in this list from Responsible Travel. So I'll include a link to that in the show notes as well. So I really hope you enjoyed this episode and I would love to hear what you think. So head on over to bettertravelpodcast.com and send me a voicemail or write me a note or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you've learned something from this episode, I hope you might share it with a friend who, you know, you think might enjoy it as well. You've been listening to the Better Travel Podcast and I'm your host, Paige McClanahan. Artemis Irvin is our producer and social media editor, and Jessica Danheiser composed our score. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time.